Amen. You may be seated as you're being seated, if you'll find your Bibles. And we're going to be in Daniel chapter 4 today, Daniel chapter 4. I pray that we never reach a point where when we think of the cross or read about the cross in Scripture, that we don't stand in awe of who Jesus is and what he did for us. Uh, If we reach that point, whenever we think about what Christ has done for us on the cross, and it doesn't strike us, particularly with a sense of of, uh, gratitude and even awe, then perhaps we need to search our own heart and ask ourselves, has pride moved in and taken up residence within me? Because whenever we survey the cross, our richest gain we count but loss because of who Christ is. Well, as a church, we've been working through the book of Daniel, looking at some of the high points in that book. And you'll recall that last week uh, we left Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the other side of the fiery furnace. Daniel and the Hebrew three had been taken into exile by a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And they had lost everything about their old life. They were taken from their home, taken from their family. Everything that they knew and loved was lost. But now they had begun a new life there in Babylon. And along the way, they had faced some significant trials. The king had a dream and nobody could interpret it for him. And so he was going to kill all of his interpreters until Daniel finally stepped up and was able to interpret the dream for the king. And then the king made a great statue to himself, a big text-sized monument to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he told all the ruling class that they had to bow down and worship him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not do that, and so they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And we saw last week in Daniel chapter 3, that the Lord delivered them from the fires of the furnace. Well, in chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar goes to sleep again, and he has yet another dream. And in this dream, he sees a great tree. And the Bible says the tree was so great that it reached the skies, and it was so broad that beneath the branches, animals could take shelter, and animals could find food. Think in your own mind of the largest tree you have ever seen. Remember how large it was? Remember how vast the branches were? I remember a few years ago, I was on a hike in the mountains, and in the middle of that hike, it started pouring down rain on us. And so we ultimately had to find shelter. I know it's not generally recommended that you seek shelter underneath a tree, in the rainstorm because it's like lightning rod right beside you. But we found this massive tree, and it it was so dense and so large that whenever we were underneath that tree, it didn't even feel like it was raining on us, even though it was downpouring. And we just sat underneath that tree, watched the rainfall, saw the, the wildlife, and saw the mountains, and it was just one of the most peaceful, beautiful sights that I've ever seen sitting beneath that great tree in the rain. Well, in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the tree was cut down. 
and all that was left was a tree stump. Around the tree stump was a band of iron and brass, and in the dream, weeds began to grow up in the tree stump. No longer could animals seek shelter beneath the vast branches of the tree. Instead, they would run on top of the stump. It was just a poor, forgotten, old, has-been tree stump. So the king tries to figure out what the dream is all about. And he summons Daniel. Daniel was his go-to guy to help him interpret his dreams. So he brings Daniel in. And when Daniel hears the dream, the Bible actually says that Daniel is stunned by the dream because he knows the king's not going to like the interpretation. Well, Daniel, though, in boldness, looks at the king and he says, King, you are the great tree. God has raised you up. You have become this great ruler, and there are many underneath your branches. There are many underneath your care, and God has put you in this position of leadership, but you are going to be cut down. And then he really delivers the stunning message to the king. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to lose your sanity. You're going to live like a wild animal for seven years. You're going to live in the wilderness. You're going to act as though you are one of the animals. You are going to be a madman for seven years. And the reason for this, King, is because you have become prideful and God needs to humble you. Well, the king chooses not to kill Daniel for the bad news. He lets him live, and a year goes by. And the king is in his penthouse balcony, on his penthouse balcony, and he's overlooking the kingdom, and he sees his Babylonian Manhattan, and he says to himself, Look what I have built. Look at all this. Look at these great buildings. Look at this mass of people. Look at all of this wealth. I'm sure you've been on airplanes before and looked out the window and, see, and saw a, a great city. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar sees his great city and says, This is all mine. Look what I've done. And at that time, the Scriptures say that the prophecy of Daniel was fulfilled in King Nebuchadnezzar. He lost his mind. He went mad, and for seven years, he lived like a wild animal. But then in verse 34 of chapter 4, the Scriptures say, At the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. And then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified Him who lives forever. Down in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the King of heaven, because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now notice a couple things here. Nebuchadnezzar is lost. He is out of his mind. And then he looks up to heaven. And whenever he turns his eyes upon God, that is whenever wisdom and sanity return. And his response is to praise the Most High and honored and to bring glory to the name of God. 
And in verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan powerful king, says, I now praise and exalt the glor- and glorify the king of heaven. I have been humbled by him, and I understand that he is king, and I am not. It appears that this pagan Gentile king had become a believer in the holy God of Daniel. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar ruled for 43 years, and then he went to be with the father. And after Nebuchadnezzar left the throne, the Babylonian Empire went through six years of massive trouble. In six years, they had three different kings. All three of those kings were assassinated until finally in 556 B.C., a man by the name of Nabonidus became king of Babylon. Now, Nabonidus was a tough guy. He was a man's man. Think about somebody you know in your life that's a man's man. No, it's not you, man. It's somebody else. But think about everybody. All these guys are like, that's me. No, no, it's not you. It's somebody else. But think about somebody that you know that's just a really uh, a tough guy, and that was Nabonidus. Now, he was king for 17 years, and he was able to stabilize things and get the kingdom going in a positive way. But he had a problem. Nabonidus didn't like to be king. He didn't really enjoy sitting on golden thrones and wearing tights. He would rather be out hunting or fishing. He, would li- he liked to build things. And so most of the time, he wasn't on the throne. And so what he did was he named his son, Belshazzar, the co-regent. And Belshazzar would serve as the acting king when Nabonidus was gone. Well, in the east, trouble was brewing. In what is modern-day Iran, a king by the name of Cyrus was building what would become the first Persian empire. And he had marched his army up to the crown jewel, the city of Babylon, and they had surrounded the city. Half of his army was in the north, half of his army was in the south. Trouble was looming just outside the city walls. So what does King Belshazzar do? In chapter 5 and verse 1, King Belshazzar had a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine in their presence and under the influence of the wine. Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. And so they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. And they drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So Belshazzar has trouble. And everybody knows that whenever you are the leader and evil is at your doorstep, whenever trouble is looming and the dark clouds of adversity have rolled in, whenever things are falling apart, the one thing that you need to do 
is go play golf, right? That's what you do in those situations. Or in this case, he didn't play golf because it hadn't been invented yet, I suppose. So he, he throws a party and he says, we're going to eat, we're going to drink, we're going to be merry, and we're going to have a good time. And while we're at it, we're going to mock God. And then he begins getting drunk, and he does something very, very foolish. He plays beer pong with the gold goblets that were from the Jerusalem Holy Temple. He brings these gold cups that had been fashioned for worship of Almighty God, and he brings them into his debauchery. So the king, the cabinet, the senate, the house, the governors, the mayors, Everybody was drunk as a skunk. They were intoxicated. They didn't stop at one glass. They kept on drinking. According to the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse, 25% of adults turn to alcohol whenever you face stress. 7% of adults are drunk at least once a month. In the United States today, There are 17 million American adults who are alcoholics, 855,000 teenagers who are dealing with alcoholism just in our country. There are 88,000 deaths per year that are related to alcohol abuse issues. It is the third leading cause of preventable death in our nation, 223 billion dollars a year is spent dealing with alcohol-related issues. Ten percent of the children in the United States of America are being raised with at least one parent who is an alcoholic. My own father was raised by an alcoholic father and saw him in his drunkenness throw his mother through windows He was pulled out of bed in the middle of the night and given spankings for no reason whatsoever except for the fact that his father was drunk. Proverbs 20 and verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler, and whoever staggers, and get the imagery here, it's whoever staggers because of them is not wise. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 says, Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled by the Spirit. If you are a believer in Christ, if you are a child of the King, you have no business getting drunk. Talk to officers in our church. Talk to these people that spend their days walking the streets and dealing with families, and they will tell you, that day in and day out, they see families, they see children that are hurting and being torn apart because of drunkenness. Well now, since it's getting quite quiet in here, perhaps we should return to the biblical account. Belshazzar's party, his denial party, was now in high gear. He had powerful men in attendance, He had loose women in attendance, and he had lots of booze. And so I'm sure that they were joking and laughing, having a good time, but then quickly the hilarity turned to fear. In verse 5, 
the Bible says, at that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. And as the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him, and I love the imagery here, that his hip joints shook and his knees knocked together. Have you ever been so nervous that you reached a point where you literally could not control your body? True story from my own life. I used to be so petrified of public speaking that whenever I stood behind a lectern to give a speech in class, the the lectern would shake like, I'm not joking, it, it would shake like this. I was so, so violently nervous. In fact, it was one of the ways that the Lord confirmed that he had called me to preach was after I was called to preach at the age of 14. I wrestled with that for a couple of years because I was like, Lord, have you seen me speak? But uh, one of the things that went away is I was no longer nervous to speak in public. And that was one of the ways that the Lord confirmed his calling on my life. Well, there's a famous saying that you've probably heard before. The handwriting was on the wall. Anybody ever heard that saying before? Well, it actually began right here in Daniel chapter 5. So Belshazzar, in his anxiety, wants to know what this mystical hand has written on the wall. So he calls in the same bunch of Harry Potter misfits that King Nebuchadnezzar always called, and they all stand before him, and they can't give him an answer. And Yoda can't give him an answer. And the Long Island medium can't give him an answer. And so eventually, the queen says, Hey, Belshazzar, you remember that old guy who's now in his 60s? That old guy named Daniel. Why don't you bring him in and ask him what it is? So the king brings in Daniel. And Daniel stands before Belshazzar. And he says, Do you remember your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar was a great king, but he got caught up in his pride, and God had to humble his heart. You remember the story of Belshazzar. You saw what happened. He became like a wild animal. God had to humble him so that he might turn his eyes towards the heavens. And Belshazzar, you too are prideful. God is not happy with you that you would take these golden goblets from the holy temple and abuse them and make a mockery of them in this way. And so God is going to humble your heart. And in chapter 5 and verse 26, the scriptures say, this is the interpretation of the message. Mene, mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed in the balance and found deficient. Pires means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Well, Belshazzar gave an order, and they clothed Daniel in purple, and they placed a gold chain around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now remember, the reason that he's the third ruler in the kingdom 
is because Belshazzar is actually the number two ruler in the kingdom. And then the story of Belshazzar ends in verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Ancient Babylon had these massive walls. And you're familiar with antiquity, how they would build walls around the city to protect them from invading armies. So Babylon had these massive walls, and inside the city, they had a 20-year food supply. They also had a river, the Euphrates River, which ran through the city. It came in through the northern gates and uh, flowed beneath the gate, went through the city, and then flowed out the southern side of the city. And because this great river was there, they could grow crops, and they thought to themselves, you know what, we are siege-proof. We can live inside these walls for an unlimited amount of time. They had a false sense of security. They had pride. And so they looked out and they saw Cyrus' army. And they said to themselves, yes, it's troublesome. Yes, there are problems on the horizon. But they are tomorrow's problems. Right now, I'm fine. And so today, I'll just eat, drink, and be merry, and be puffed up in my pride. But quietly, to the north, the Persian army had dug a channel. And they had been able to divert most of the Euphrates River down into a nearby lake, which caused the water levels to recede on the southern side of the city, where half the army had been stationed. And so, the army was able to walk beneath the gates of Babylon and into the city. And before the sun could rise, the Babylonian empire was no more. Now these two stories that we've talked about today, they both revolve around one word. And that word is pride. Both of these leaders... Both of these men had to be humbled because they had become puffed up in pride. Whenever I, well, one of the ways that I like to get thoughts out of me is by writing. And so occasionally I'll write blog posts or just write thoughts. I have a site that I publish those on. And a a few months ago, uh, we sang the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and I'd been preaching on pride. And so I wrote something. I wrote, When Pride Meets Love. I'll publish it again this afternoon if you want to read this in its entirety. But I thought as we conclude these stories here that it was really a perfect uh, ending to tie all these thoughts together. When Pride Meets Love. Pride is an interesting word. You can't say pride without saying I, and without saying ride. We all ride pride sometimes to the streets of life. Pride is odd in that it can be a positive word conveying love or admiration, or it can be a distasteful word conveying egotism, vanity, rebellion, and sin. In pride, I am the object of my faith. 
Pride elevates me to a position that rightfully belongs to God. Pride focuses on my needs and selfishly views God and others as existing to serve me. Pride is confusing. It shuffles my perspective and causes me to embrace rational lies. I see my arrogance as confidence. My superiority expresses itself in cynical humor. The right of pride leads me to a fictional world where I am all-knowing and everyone around me is trapped in foolishness. Pride draws me in with that new car smell and soft ride. And pride drives fast and reckless. The law does not apply when I grip the wheel of pride, but in the end, the ride of pride leaves nothing more than a mangled mess of broken dreams, manipulated relationships, and a cold soul. The Bible teaches that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Three times in Scripture, we are reminded that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. By contrast, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not conceited. Pride is to sin what love is to grace. The ringing of Calvary's hammer is a collision of pride and love. The cross is necessary because of my pride, but it is also necessary because of God's love. The cross is a clumsy display of my hideous pride and a graceful display of God's forgiving grace. On the cross, love is pierced by pride and grace is crowned by evil. On the cross, pride drains the veins of love. Drop by drop, pride's antidote puddles below. And when his head bowed in death, pride raised his head in victory. But when the earth stood still and the tomb stood open, it was pride that had died and love that was alive. The antidote to pride is the cross. And when I look upon the humility and love of the cross, I see the magnificence of His love for me, and I have nothing left in which to boast. From the cross, the purity of His righteousness shines into the corners of my heart, exposing the darkness of my sin and contempt is poured on my pride. From the cross, the glories of money, power, and fame lose their allure, and my richest gain I count but loss. At the cross, my broken dreams, my manipulated relationship, my cold soul collides with love. When my pride surveys His love, I bow beneath the cross my faith is transferred from me to him, and the drops of grace cleanse me and make me fully whole. At the cross, pride dies, and love comes alive. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads when we come to a time of commitment.
My friend, are you are you living in pride today? Are you taking that ride of pride and living life as if you are God and that you're in control? The whole concept of worship is co- coming to that realization that you are not God and that we must bow the knee before the holy creator of the universe and acknowledge that He is the King of kings, not us. That He is the one who creates and sustains. He is the one who gives and takes. That He is the star of the show, not me. And yet so often all of us, we get caught up in living in our own world and we fail to see what God is doing. For some of us, we've been spending all of our energies, all of our money. We have been going wholeheartedly trying to build the kingdom of ourself. And we look out at our lives and we say to ourselves, look what I've built. And sometimes God has to knock us down so that we might look up to the heavens And remember that He is the great King. He is our God. Sometimes we have to stop battling God and playing God and surrender to God. Maybe you've been thinking about Christianity and what it means to believe. And today God is really just grabbed a hold of your heart and He's shown you that you need to be a believer. It's time for you to place your faith in Christ. To turn over your soul and your hope to Him. I invite you to make this day the day of your belief. Invite you to come and see me. I'll be here at the front and I would love to pray with you. I'll be here after the service if there's anything I can encourage you in, help you with. It's my delight to be a pastor to you. Father, we thank you so much for this time where we can gather. And we're mindful, Lord, not to take this time for granted. And we're also mindful, Lord, that this hour of worship doesn't exist uh, for our delight. It exists for your delight. And so we draw near to you. We proclaim your greatness. We open your word. We let you pour yourself into our hearts. And we desire, Father, that we might be changed so that we may walk in light and wisdom so that our lives might reflect you and draw people to you. And so I pray, Lord, that you will drain the pride from our lives and build within us a godly humility that worships you and honors you in everything. It's in your name that we pray and we worship. Amen.